Friends, let us pray. Holy God, awaken and illumine us by your word and your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson is from the book of Genesis, chapter 32, verses 22 through 31. Hear these words of scripture. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise, everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him in the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? When Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you are looking for a good read, pull out a Bible, go to the very first book of Genesis, and read the whole story of Jacob. It begins in chapter 29 and goes all the way through chapter 35. It's a biblical soap opera full of intrigue, deception, twists, turns, and complicated relationships. And if you were eavesdropping during this morning's children's sermon, you heard a brief paraphrase of the larger narrative from Ralph Milton's lectionary story Bible. Well, today's particular sermon text picks up Jacob's story at a crisis point. Jacob is all alone at night in the dark waiting for what will happen the next day and maybe even dreading it because he is on his way to meet his twin brother Esau. And Jacob hasn't seen him for years and years, not since long before he got married several times over. Thanks in part to his uncle's deception, it runs in the family. Not since before he had all of his children. You see, Jacob hasn't seen him since he duped Esau out of the inheritance that was to go to the firstborn son, which was Esau. Jacob hasn't seen him since he robbed him of his customary blessing. Not since all of those years ago when he made Esau angry enough to want to kill him out of revenge. So now it's only prudent 
that Jacob be very, very cautious going back to see him because, of course, you don't want to surprise a bloodthirsty man. So he sends his messengers ahead to give Esau advance notice to beg for kindness. And they, in turn, come back with an ominous-sounding message that Esau will come to meet him all right, along with 400 of his closest friends. So now what do you do? You can pray for deliverance, and Jacob does that very fervently. You can also buy yourself a little insurance, and Jacob does that too. He sends over lots and lots of gifts to smooth the way and hopefully soothe that burning anger of Esau. And you can create a buffer zone between you and the one that you fear. So Jacob does that too. He sends his whole household across the river ahead of him and puts them in between himself and Esau. And he stays back for one more night as if he can avoid the conflict that is surely to come. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to put off facing the one big thing that you need to face? Have you ever tried to put off talking to the one person you needed to talk to? Have you ever tried to avoid the thing that you dreaded in hopes that it would somehow magically disappear? How'd that work out for you? You see, if your experience is anything at all like mine, it rarely resolves anything, and it results in some very anxious nights. And so it is with Jacob. There's to be no rest for him this night, for in putting off that face-to-face -face meeting with his estranged brother, he finds himself in a different conflict, wrestling with a mysterious, unknown man until daybreak. Now, I'm not a wrestler. I don't even play one on TV, but I have certainly watched it, as most of you no doubt have. So you know the very nature of wrestling is utterly physical. Bodies sweat in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Opponents try to outwit and outmaneuver one another. They use their shoulders, their elbows, their knees, and their hands to twist and turn their rivals' bodies into submission. Leg lock, wrist lock, Headlock, they will do whatever it takes to pin their adversaries underneath them. They will do whatever it takes to render their opponents powerless in their grip. Jacob has spent his whole life outwitting and outmaneuvering others in order to get what he wants. He is a pro at besting his opponent. But this time is different. Now he doesn't know who he's fighting, and he has to do it with all of the physical strength that he can muster. So the match lasts all night long. From dusk to dawn, they struggle as the clock ticks and ticks. And finally, when the two wrestlers are at a stalemate, Jacob's rival strikes him hard, puts his hip out of joint, and asks Jacob to let him go. 
But Jacob must sense that there is something about his adversary that is holy and divine, and always looking for that advantage, despite being wounded, Jacob says he will not let go unless the man blesses him. And only then does he learn that it's not just anyone that he is fighting. Only then does he learn that he is grappling with God. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever struggled with something so hard that all you could do was just gut it out and hang on for dear life, like Jacob did? Maybe something happened that led you to wonder whether God has abandoned you. That huge loss that makes no sense. The rejection you experienced when you were most vulnerable. The betrayal by the one you trusted. Or maybe, like Jacob, you have found yourself in a quandary of your own making, and now you don't know how to get out of it. Or maybe you found yourself in a situation where something you always believed was ripped to shreds, and now you don't know if you can put it all back together again. There's a term for this when it happens to people in seminary. It's called Bible meltdown. Well, maybe you've even said to yourself, I guess I just don't have enough faith because if I did, I surely wouldn't have all these questions. Or maybe you've even gone so far as to question whether religion in general or whether this Christian faith in particular that we claim has any meaning at all. Does it even matter? Maybe you recite the words of the Apostles' Creed or of the brief statement of faith, and yet you're not sure you buy into it 100% or even 50%. And what are these scriptures we read anyway? If they're not a how-to instruction manual, what are they? Why are there stories of violence in scripture? How come there are contradictions? How do faith and reason and intellect go together? Why not just be a good person? it would surely free up a whole lot of Sunday mornings. These are the ambiguities of our human existence, where things aren't the way you think they're supposed to be, but the best that you can do is hold on as tight as you can. And how can you even fathom the possibility that God could be found in the middle of it? This ancient story is a timeless text because I think it speaks to the reality of the nature of faith. That at times we struggle desperately for clarity and resolution. And much as we hold dear the words of Hebrews 11.1 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, it is also true that living a life of faith is like participating in one big wrestling match. And when our faith is on the mat, we're threatened, and the struggle seems to be our enemy. 
And yet Jacob's story offers up the possibility that these struggles, that Mary questions of faith with the vicissitudes of life aren't so much threats to be avoided, but encounters with God to be embraced. For we run the risk of totally missing out meeting God face to face if we run away from those uncertainties, those things that challenge what we always thought faith was about. And we have to entertain the possibility that it's not in the resolution of the struggle that we first meet up with the Holy One, but it's in the very struggle itself. And given that, this age-old story strikes me not only as timeless, but as a text precisely for our time, this particular time. For I believe it presents us a faithful way to be the church in the world as it is today. Robert P. Jones uses the term white Christian America as a metaphor for the cultural and political and demographic dominance historically enjoyed by most of us in this sanctuary. And that dominance has ended in the past decade. And Jones offers reasons that include declining birth rates, demographics from immigration, disaffiliation with religious institutions, clashes over science and evolution, climate change and LGBT inclusion. And there's also evidence that as a country becomes more affluent, rates of religious affiliation decline. And listen closely to what's underneath and, and driving that litany of reasons. And I think we hear a whole lot of questioning going on. So what would it look like for us to struggle alongside people around us who are asking those questions? In a keynote I heard this summer at the Chautauqua Institution entitled, Why I Am Christian, conservative political writer Andrew Sullivan shared his surprising and very personal struggles with faith and loss as a gay Roman Catholic, and why, in spite of some of his arguments with his tradition, he chooses to remain in it. And as he offered his thoughts on what the current state of religious disaffiliation and decline means, he said, and he observed that the great mistake of contemporary religion and throughout history has been certainty about things with which there can be no certainty. In essence, he asserted that when it comes to faith in our Christian tradition, the idea that your only choice is limited to A, an unambiguous faith that constrains, or B, a benign spirituality without any moorings, that choice is false. What you think is constraining isn't, he said. Christianity has always been about questioning the established religion. 
Religion is not something you can think yourself into. You have to practice, practice, practice. Or in light of today's text, I might say, wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. It's fascinating to me that even in this Old Testament text, God appears to Jacob in human form. And it might just offer us a model for being a people who are willing to engage with others who wrestle with their own tough questions of faith and life, not counting on our own sure and certain answers, but on the blessing of struggling together. In Jacob's story, his opponent blessed him with a new name and the revelation that he had somehow wrestled with God face to face. Jacob was renamed Israel, meaning struggle with God, and this new identity would remain with his descendants forever. Celia Brewer Marshall wrote, in scripture, danger and opportunity are flip sides of the same coin. This is a crisis situation and Jacob must fight for his life, but when it's over, he has more life than he could imagine. And in case he should need a reminder of that blessing as he left to reconcile with the brother that he cheated, all Jacob had to do was look down and watch himself limp as he walked. Michael Coffey wrote this reflection. Because I journeyed too close to the event horizon, because I dreamed deeper than REM and hallucination, because I half-nelsoned the mystery into self-revelation, because I knew silent stillness is not the only holy way, I limp with a hip socket struck by marvelous pain. I limp with an eagle wounded and the wound a blessing. I limp a survivor from a close encounter with the other. I limp slower and wiser, purple-hearted from the battle. I could have walked briskly away from the one hiding among us. I could have danced on with a smooth sliding stroll. I could have run tremulous from the infinite unknowable. I could have feigned my gait as if I were free of divine wrestling. Do you walk hiding all your out-of-joint questions and doubts? Do you slip away from the ring when the bell sounds three? Do you hide from the God who would rather have a wrangle that let you walk on without knowing you are known? Would you rather hide from the God who would have a wrangle than let you walk on without knowing you are known? People of God, consider the possibility that when you are in the middle of a knockdown, drag out fight with matters of body and spirit, of life and faith, that God is right there on the mat with you. And if it's God you're wrestling with, it might take all night 
and it might even end in a draw. And yet, if it's really God who is face to face with you, the struggle that seems to be your enemy just may be your friend. And it may even be your blessing. And if you're not sure, just look and see if you are limping. It's very possible that it's a sign that God has been at work in you. Amen.